If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 12. As Richard has already mentioned this morning, last week we had the wonderful privilege of celebrating a baptism. Baptism is an incredibly important ordinance in the Christian church. It is a symbol and a picture of our union with Christ, and it is indeed a helpful picture. In word, if we are to talk about what that is to symbolize, it is symbolizing the fact that we are crucified with Christ. And it is incredibly kind at the very front end to know that God gave us a picture of our union with Christ instead of actually calling on us to be crucified ourselves. It's a much easier one uh, to, to undergo baptism than it is to undergo crucifixion. But nevertheless, even in baptism, our being baptized points towards our being crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul says that he has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He finishes that book in 6.14 by saying, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Even in Jesus' own lifetime, he pressed people to understand that they must take up their cross daily and follow him. He says this in Luke 9. In a real sense then, not just in picture and word and metaphor, but in reality, the cross of Jesus Christ is ours as well. We share it with him. We are unified with him in his death. We need to continually point at that cross because at the cross is where we truly find our union with Christ. This is great comfort to us. Part of that great comfort is that we are with Christ here, even as he has left us and ascended to the Father. We are still one with him. We are with him and he is with us. This again is the great comfort that Matthew leaves us with. The very last words of his gospel, Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Romans 8 understands it this way. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are unified with Christ. Symbolized in baptism, in reality through our trust and belief in the gospel, we are unified with him. We are with him. He is with us. This is the great comfort that comes to us. The question then I think that we can turn to is what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us to be with Christ? Is it simply passive on our account? Is it because Christ has died and he has given us belief and we enact on that belief that it is only passive? There is no responsibility on our side. But if there is responsibility, what does that responsibility look like? How ought we to act if we are to understand that we are one with Christ? Certainly baptism is a good start, but we can't baptize every single day. We can't baptize every single week. We have one baptism. Today, I think John 12 hopefully will help us see both the right and the wrong way to belong to Christ. This is, as it were, a picture before the teaching. Jesus is going to point to many things. Actually, one of the beautiful things that happens here is in acting out of John 13 before we get to John 13. It's quite a wonderful picture that Mary gives us of devotion to her Lord. It is an acting out before Jesus actually turns around and tells us how it is to be. Such a response, given that it comes before any instruction, is meant to be the natural outgrowth of Christian witness 
of, of Christian living. Jesus has done wonderful things for us. Many blessings have flown to us from Christ, innumerable blessings. And even those ones we can enumerate are greater and deeper and wider than we can ever appreciate. So belonging to him, being with him, being near him and loving him ought to be a natural outgrowth of what our salvation has brought to us. Even so, the picture provided for us today will certainly help both to inform our understanding and spur on our own love for Jesus. That is my prayer. So how might we better picture how we belong to Christ? Let us go to these first 11 verses and see. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of our God. So how might we better picture, how might we in our lives and the way in which we walk in the world better represent that we belong to Christ? The first thing I would tell you, friends, is that we must be present with Jesus. Simply be present with him. The story in front of us centers around Mary and this incredible use of expensive perfume to anoint Jesus. And even then, to the reactions that were gathered from this afterward. But John does something I think that's pretty interesting at the beginning of our text. He mentions, as though they are central to the story, even though they don't appear to be, the fact that both Martha and Lazarus are there. These details seem quite superfluous and unnecessary. It might be for the reasons to provide color to narrative. People do this all the time. They, they describe scenes of war when really the scene doesn't matter all that much. The color of the grass and the shaking of the trees doesn't indicate much of anything. It's just there to add color of vividness so that we might picture it better. But this would be fairly odd for John to do here. John just doesn't seem to care at all about being vivid in his depiction of what's happening in these scenes. This is made even more striking at the fact that we realize that this same story is told in two different places, perhaps three different places, but at least two different places in the Gospels. And remember, John is writing as a supplement to the other three Gospels, or at least that's what I believe. That he knows of the other three, and he's writing to kind of supplement what they say. So both in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, and in Mark 14, 3 through 9, we have the same event repeated, and those events are repeated without mentioning any of the siblings without mentioning Mary, without mentioning Martha, without mentioning Lazarus. Mark reads this way. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and 
of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the wide world, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Notice in, in Matthew and in Mark, we didn't read Matthew, we did read Mark. Matthew reads pretty much the same. The story is the same. There are a couple of differences in detail. Those differences in detail are easily accounted for. The name of Simon the leper is left out in John's account, but the name of the woman, the name of her brother and sister are also included. Why does John give us that information? For John to place the story here is important because it does come directly after these three have had a miracle done for them in the raising of Lazarus. And lest we forget this miracle was not just for Lazarus. We have very little information on how his death affected him, right? We don't get 23 minutes in hell. We don't get 90 minutes in heaven. We get, I came out of a tomb. That's all we get. Lazarus doesn't speak. We have no words from him. We have a lot of words from Mary and Martha. We know how it impacted them. This is a miracle for them as much as it is for their brother. The miracle does something beautiful for them. And it's important then that the very place we find them next is with Jesus. It is a natural, natural thing for them to be with him. The miracle that has been done has left them in his debt. This is what it means to trust in Christ. It cannot be just sort of a mental ascent saying, yes, he did this great miracle. Yes, he is capable of doing a miracle. But to believe in him means that you come near him, that you are present with him, just as both Martha and Lazarus are here. The miracles done by Jesus have the response of a heartfelt desire to be with him, to know him, to serve him, both as friend and as Lord. Being near him is meant to be a treasure to those who know him, and this has always been the case. When he rescued people out of Egypt, he was with them through the desert. When he went into the land, he was the one who drove them out. He dwelled with them in the land. He even then made himself flesh and dwelled with us here on earth, he has placed his spirit inside of us. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. This is to be a great comfort for us. He has made himself present with us. So we should be present with him as well. Yes, even grant that it's a natural occurrence of what has happened. Even granting that our hearts should always be enlivened to Christ. The question that confronts us then today is how are we to do this? It was kind of easy for Martha and Mary and Lazarus they could simply ask him over. <laughs> We're having a party. Would you come over? Being present with Jesus was easy. He was physically there. They could physically be present with him. They could recline at table with Jesus next to them. How can we do this? We, we can't be physically present. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We can't be present with him in the same way. Let me give you two ways in which I think that you can be present with Jesus first. Individually, simply spend time in the word. Jesus is first and foremost in the gospel of John called the word of God. He is called that because 
Everywhere that God is revealed, it is revealed in Jesus. He is, as Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image. He is not an image. He's not a kind of picture. He is the picture of God. Every time that God reveals himself, he reveals himself in Jesus. That is why John calls him the word. To spend time in the word is to spend time with no one else besides Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says basically the same thing. God used to speak to us through the prophets and the apostles, or excuse me, the prophets and through our fathers, but now he has spoken to us by his son through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Anytime God reveals himself, he always does so through Jesus. To spend time in the word of God is to spend time with Jesus. It is to be present with him. If you want to know him, If you want to spend time in his presence, do so through the reading of his word. Meditate on it, for in doing so you are drawing close to him. But secondly, simply spend time with his people. For many of us, this wouldn't seem odd. I think for the wider world, this would seem odd. After all, no one person here is Jesus. Jesus does not dwell bodily in any of us. We are not the second coming of Jesus. And we don't believe that Jesus becomes part of the Eucharist as a real corporeal thing. But when we gather together as a church, we realize that Jesus is here in a way that he is otherwise not with us. In Acts 9-5, as Paul is going around persecuting the church, he sees a blinding light on the road to Damascus, and he says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, it's a very strange thing for him to say that because Jesus had already ascended on the clouds in the beginning of the book of Acts and he was in heaven. The people who were being persecuted were not Jesus, but his church is him. When we talk about the unity of believers with Christ and Christ with believers, we mean that. We mean it is real. It's not a metaphor. It is real and true. It might not be bodily. It might not be corporeal, but he is there with us. In 1 Corinthians, in talking about gifts given to the church, in chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, Paul, the same one that heard from the Lord Jesus Christ, he learned very well what Jesus meant by that because he turns around and says, for just as the body is one and has many members, right? So you have arms, you have legs, you have a nose, you've got many parts of you, just as the There is one body and it has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ which is a phenomenal statement. So it is with Christ. He's saying you are all members with Christ. You are all parts of the body of Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. At the end of the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul puts it a different way. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. You want to spend time with Jesus, spend time with his people. This is again reaffirmed in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a supper of unity. That's why we call it communion. I don't know if you ever noticed that union part in there, com, coming together in union. We, we come together, we are unified together because we are each unified in Christ. You are his body on the earth book of Hebrews says, do not neglect the meeting of one another together, 
I'm telling you, as some do this, they forfeit. They absolutely forfeit the closeness that they can have to Jesus Christ. You can read your Bible individually, and you can be near him, but you cannot be near him the way you can be in the church, unified to one another. That is why our gathering together is so important. That's why I love standing up here and looking out and seeing the vast majority of our church members here every single Sunday because we realize that that is one of the ways we get to know Jesus. To cut yourself off from the people of God is in a very real sense to cut yourself off from God's presence. It has always been that way. When you read, as you are reading, hopefully, through the Old Testament, even in our reading plan, one of the severest measures that are handed out to the people of God is what? They are not my people. People who sin before the Lord with a high hand are thrust out of the people of God. They are excommunicated. The same thing that the church does when the church looks at sin that is unrepented of. We excommunicate those people is to cut them off from Christ. In this manner, we do well to show that we belong to Christ individually by being present with him in the word and collectively by being present with him in his body. Secondly, while we are to be present with Christ, we should also bring presence for Jesus. Bring presence for Jesus. I mean, this is literally what Mary does. She brings a present for Jesus. The focus of the passage begins to come into frame as Mary does something quite extraordinary. The perfume or the nard, whatever it might want to be called, is incredibly expensive. It is pure, it is foreign, and there is a lot of it. There's quite a bit of it, so much so that they talk about him being anointed on his head in the book of Mark. But in John, it talks about him being anointed on his feet, probably because it's hard to anoint just one part of a man's body when you're doing it with this much nard. It has to go all over the place. It's a liquid, after all. It flows downhill. Okay? So there's a lot of this, and it is incredibly expensive. So 300 denarii, now we can't just talk about, well, if we consider inflation and bring it up today. The, the numbers start to not make sense because our economy doesn't work like their economy does, but that would have been one denarius is an average wage for one person for one day. 300 is the average wage of one person for an entire year because they don't work on Sabbaths and they don't work on holidays. So even if they worked every other day of the year, 300 is, is about the average. In Michigan, the median income is somewhere around 56000 Now, because these people were probably working for a household, it might even be better to take it as a picture of household income, which would raise it all the way up to about $75,000. Now, I don't know if you've bought perfume lately. They typically are not that expensive. Now, you can go to a mall in Dubai where there is a $1.8 million bottle of perfume. That is ridiculous, and it's ridiculous primarily not just because the perfume is that expensive, but because the bottle that it's held in has like 38 carats total worth of diamonds in it, which is about the size of one of those ring pops back there, I'm pretty sure. It's just, it's ridiculous. It has over 18 pounds of silver and gold, so it's hard to actually know what they, they think that the perfume costs. Just goes to show that no matter how ridiculous the ancients might seem to be, $50,000 worth of perfume sitting in a house, we can always be more ridiculous. So, 
Mary's family was probably very wealthy. The fact that they had so many people coming out to comfort and console them demonstrates that they were well-known, they were well-esteemed, and they were likely important, all of which points to the fact that they are very wealthy. Even so, this is an incredibly elaborate gift. It is an incredibly generous gift to give to him. What are we to make of this? Perhaps they had something that was worth more. Perhaps they had land or cattle. Maybe they had that old Biddy's diamond from the Titanic somewhere in the back room. Who knows? But they, it's very unlikely that they had more of value than this alabaster jar of pure nard. She gave the best thing that she could find to him. And the question is, how are we to bring these gifts to Jesus today? Again, this particular gift was given at a particular time, and it's not clear that we need to repeat it or that we're even capable of repeating it. He's physically not with us. If you've ever driven south through Ohio on I-75, there is a church near Monroe, Ohio, that has a huge statue of Jesus. Okay? Now, this particular statue of Jesus is the second statue of Jesus that they have, and he is walking kind of towards the highway with his arms out like this. Now, unfortunately, when they built this statue was when Subway was doing their $5 footlong thing, and he holds his hands out like this, so the, the residents there ironically call him the $5 footlong Jesus because he's got his hands held out like this. That's the second statue that they made. That's about 52 feet high. The first one was about 62 feet high and was called Butter Jesus, because when he was coming out of this lake, he had like a yellow kind of film on him or something. I don't know what the deal was, but 62 feet tall. And it was only like from the bottom of his chest up. It's just a huge statue. Cost them somewhere in the neighborhood of $250,000 to commission and to build. Now, that's a little bit more expensive than this bottle of nard. Is that the direction we ought to go? I'm not hearing any yeses. So, good. We're on the right, tr- on the right track already. Uh, we do have the money to do that. It's, it's sitting there in the bank, but let's, let's think about that. Listen, these two things are at least somewhat comparable. They are both incredibly expensive. They both seem, quite rightly, extravagant. And they are both meant to, in, in some way, shape, or form, honor Jesus. We, we build statues to honor people. No? It seems like they certainly are analogous in some way, shape, or form. So how are we to make a difference between what Mary does and what this church in Monroe, Ohio does? Other than one being found in Scripture, explicitly allowed by Jesus, and the other seemingly a product of a mega church with too much money on their hand, should we invest in a big statue? No, I think there's probably four reasons, most of which center around the fact that Mary's action could never be mistaken for a self-indulgent publicity stunt. And please understand, I have no problem with this church. I have no idea what this church holds to. All I mean is, it's clear that people have mistaken whatever their intentions might have been, they have been taken for being nothing more than a publicity stunt. This is why people mock it. They don't think it's a real honoring of Jesus. First, notice what Mary does. It's an incredibly humble gesture. She takes down her hair, which is no less than a symbol of glory, and she wipes Jesus's dirty feet with it, which, as we will see again in John 13, was about the humblest thing that you could possibly do. 
The fact that she takes the best part of her and uses it on the worst part of him shows an incredible humility. Secondly, it wasn't trying to draw attention to herself. It was done in private with little to no fanfare. Matthew and Mark make this clear. They don't mention her, which is incredibly perplexing when you hear what Jesus says in there. Every time the gospel is told, it will be told, this event will be told in remembrance of her. But you notice what they don't do. They don't tell us who she is. That's a really strange thing. In remembrance of who? Matt? Come on, man. We need a little bit of help. My guess is that when Matthew and Mark were both writing their gospels, she was alive. This is my guess. There's nothing, no basis in scripture or anything. I'm guessing that she was still alive, but by the time John rolled around, she had died. And so John felt free to put her name in to give her the honor of what she had done. But certainly, this was not done to try and attract attention to her. And thirdly, the attention that she did get was quite clearly not positive. It wasn't to speak well of her. Further, anointing Jesus seems to be an important symbol. Realize that when we call him Jesus Christ, the word Christ is simply the Greek version of the the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means nothing more than the anointed one. This is, in a sense, the second half of her sister's good confession in 11.27, where she says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the anointed one. And so now in chapter 12, her sister turns around and actually anoints him. You are indeed the anointed one. She didn't have a confession in chapter 11. This is her confession. I'm not sure that the statue can do any of those things. It's certainly not a private gesture. It isn't really a symbol of anything. Jesus isn't actually 52 feet tall, and he's not anywhere near that European. And frankly, it does draw more attention to the church than it does to Jesus. And I don't think that there's any way that that statue promotes humility within the church. So what are we to do? What type of behavior ought we to have if we are going to do what God has called us to do, if we are going to bring presence to him, how are we to do that? I think it's clear. We give our lives for Christ. Christ says that we are to be homeless. We should deny our families, and we should expect that when we put our hand to the plow, we cannot turn around. Friends, if you believe in Jesus, you put your hand to the plow, you can't turn around and look back. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore. Therefore is in light of all that he has talked about in Romans 1 through 11. Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says your whole life ought to be lived for him. Your whole life ought to be the present that you give to him. Not because you're paying back his grace, but because you think that he is simply worthy of it on his own. We don't need to give expensive and elaborate gifts. We shouldn't think that those things are out altogether either. However, we should do what we are called to do, and that is to live our lives in such a way that all we do is done for God's glory, that where he is calling us to go, we will be obedient to go. What he is calling us to do, we will be obedient to do. Because our lives are no longer ours. We have forfeited them in belief that Jesus Christ has died and therefore we have died. We are no longer ours. We are his. The life I live, I live in Jesus Christ by faith.
being united to him means that it is his life. He is worthy of our presence. He is worthy of our lives. They belong to him for we belong to him. So let us bring them to him and lay them down. Let us bring presents to Jesus. But thirdly, let us also be pure before Jesus. We should also be honest with ourselves. This whole thing probably hits each and every one of us as quite strange and quite odd because of anywhere in scriptures that we find ourselves appealing for Judas, it's here. Now we know that he's a thief and we know that he's wrong there. But she just spent $70,000 to clean a man's feet. Be real honest about that. It's hard not to look at something like that and say, probably could have used water and then we could have like done something else with that, right? Like it's difficult to think that Judas is that wrong here. Maybe that's just me. I think that this is quite a difficult thing. Now, Judas has other problems entirely. Judas was a thief. He didn't really care about the poor. What he wanted to do was give himself a nice holiday bonus to sell the perfume. Sure, some would be given to the poor. Most of it would be given to the poor, but no one's going to miss a little bit here, a little bit there. Maybe their accounting practices weren't quite as good as they should have been. And while the problem that John identifies as theft, there's a much more foundational problem in the text. After all, he didn't actually steal this money. It was never his. His problem is that he is a huge, selfish hypocrite. He pretends to care about the poor. He pretends to care about helping them. But underneath all of that, all he is seeking is his own good. Even the fact that some was given to the poor is only as a masquerade for the fact that he gets to pilfer some out of the bag that he himself holds. He doesn't really care about the poor. And again, contrast that with Mary. Mary's actions aren't self-serving. They don't bring her fanfare. They bring her resentment. They don't bring her money. She actually loses money. They don't bring her love, but they are actually a token of the love that has already been shown to her. Mary's gift and Judas's greed are precisely opposite of one another. And frankly, one of the things that makes this hard to deal with is in a vacuum, we think that the wrong thing is being applauded here. It's not that we don't love Jesus. But it does seem like this is a very difficult thing to reconcile. But of course, actions are never what they seem like on the outside. Truth be told, the right action is the pure action. Mary just loved Jesus. She seems truly, honestly thankful for what he has done and wants to show him honor and wants to worship him in her own sense. She might not be worshiping worshiping him in the way that she might in a few decades, but certainly she wants to show honor and worth to this man who has just raised her brother from the dead. Judas's desires weren't necessarily wrong, but they were fake, they were fraudulent, and they were phony. He was simply trying to look good to mask over and cover his greed. This means whether we give great gifts to Jesus or great gifts to others, we ought to be sure that we are doing so with a purity of heart. We are giving those gifts to other people because we care about giving those gifts to other people. With a clean heart, no nefarious or selfish reasons kicked in on the side. 
D.A. Carson says this. His self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion. It must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. What Judas wanted had nothing to do with worshiping or adoring Jesus Christ. What he wanted was a few gold coins, which he would get. So how are we to be sure that our deeds are pure before Christ? Well, one way is to go back in time and to listen again to all the conscience stuff we've been talking about in Sunday school. But outside of that ability, one thing that you can do is to take Jesus' own advice. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do good things that are acceptable to you in the dark. Listen to how Jesus says, so your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Let it be so secretive that you don't even know what it is that you've given. That, that even you are ignorant to what you have done. And if you are, then certainly everybody else must be. Don't publicize it. Don't make it well known. Don't give this gift because anyone else might find out. Give it silently and give it secretly. And part of this is just understanding who God is and who Jesus is that you are unified to. If he has done these great things, if you know that Jesus is with you and that he sees everything and he knows everything, then you can give in secret and know that not only does Jesus know that you've given in secret, not only does the Father know you've given in secret, but he's good to reward you for that. Why throw that away? Let me tell you why you throw that away. You throw that away because you're greedy for worldly things and that is not what the Father holds out for you. You're greedy for those things because you're not giving of a pure heart. Not just you. Me as well. Don't even begin to think that you are so entranced with giving to the poor and helping the poor that your, your push towards doing this kind of thing is meant to spur others on because you have such a great compassion for the poor and you want to be an example to them. Friend, you don't love the poor more than Jesus does. Okay? You are not better to the weak and the oppressed than Jesus is. You are not the salvation of any of them. So don't start to think in your heart that it, the only reason why you would hold back on this is somehow because you want to make sure that you are an example to others. You don't need to be an example to others. We have that in Jesus. Let us be pure as we walk before Jesus. We don't get to define that purity on our own. We don't get to say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that because this is what God has called us to. No, Jesus lets us define that for him. We are to love him. We are to care for him. We are to adore him. And we are to worship him. This is a sure sign that we care about belonging to Jesus. So let us be pure before him. And fourthly, let us be prepared with Jesus. 
Jesus' presence here starts to stir up a hornet's nest again. He has come near to Jerusalem and people start to come out to see him. But there is this added little emphasis here that it's not just for Jesus. Lazarus has become something of a circus freak, like the bearded lady and the guy with two left hands. Now we want to come see the guy who was raised up from the dead and kind of poke him and see if he's real. So they came out to see Lazarus. And of course, the people who were leaders had a huge problem with this because they were taking or they were having people taken away from their leadership and given over to Jesus. Many people were believing in Jesus because they would come. They'd poke him in the face. He'd say, stop poking me in the face. And he goes, oh, he's alive. Like, yes, I'm alive. Jesus made me alive again. Leave me alone, okay? So because of this, people are leaving the leadership in Jerusalem and following Jesus. And if the problem is that Lazarus is simply alive, the solution adequately presents itself on making him dead again. So they do what they always do. If you're in for a penny, in for a pound, if we're going to kill Jesus, we might as well kill Lazarus. Jesus here, earlier, has says, said that she has prepared this for her burial. The ESV says this in verse 7, Leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I think the ESV has that wrong. The NIV is much better in this section where they say it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. The ESV makes it seem like it's still future. It's not still future because she has just spent the whole thing on him. This is what she saved it for. And Jesus said she has saved it for now because this is the day of my funeral. The perfume was meant and ends up being much more than Mary thought it was. It was perhaps just a way to demonstrate how much Jesus was worth to her. But it functions as the anointing of his body for burial. It is getting him prepared for what he obviously knew was coming. He wasn't running from it, although he might have been waiting for God's sign. He knew that it was coming soon. He knew that his death was imminent. He knew the leaders would reject him, that they would put him to death, and that he would hand himself over to them. He would die and be buried, and he would do so, already anointed for this end by this woman. But as we noted before, his end is not his own. His end is our end. His crucifixion is our crucifixion. And again, this isn't just some abstract metaphor, but there is a real nature to this. There are many throughout Christian history who have had to die because of what Jesus has done for them. Because the only options are you die or you deny and unwilling to love their lives even unto death. They die. Lazarus was not the first nor the last to be put in the crosshairs of the world because Jesus gave him life again. This world is a playground of the devil, and he hates life, and he loves death, and he brings it on everyone he can, especially when the light given to somebody, when life given to somebody exposes the evil of their own works. So simply by the fact that he was brought back to life by Jesus makes him part of the crosshairs of the leaders in Jerusalem. They must put him to death. They must do away with him. His life in and of itself brings Jesus glory and it must be stopped. Are you prepared the way Lazarus was prepared? Lazarus maybe didn't know this was coming. Maybe he did. But Jesus is prepared here for his death. Not only is he prepared passively, but he's prepared Actively, He knows that his death is coming. You hear people from the prosperity gospel talk all the time about an anointing. 
They, they want you to know that they're anointed. They want you to know that you can receive an anointing. Friend, that's good and true. You can receive an anointing. You're anointed for great things in God's kingdom. You're anointed to judge the world. You're anointed to inherit, anointed to inherit everything with Christ. You are also anointed to die with him. The anointing that Jesus gets here is an anointing of death. And you were called upon to die with him. All of those good things that they want cannot come without dying with him. We are called to suffer for him in the same way that he suffers. And to, if we need to, give our lives up for him. Are you prepared? Are you prepared in your heart to give your life to Christ? Not just in its death, but in its daily giving up for him. To take up your cross daily and follow him. That is what you're being called to do. We rightly think of our union with Christ as a grave and great privilege. And indeed it is. United with him on the cross, he dies so that we don't have to. The death that we owed to God, the severest of punishments, such a great price was paid in full by Jesus Christ. And our God is satisfied in that because he is always satisfied in himself. When you place your trust in Jesus, you have effectively already died your sin and you have been raised to a new life again. You are never going to die again. Amen and amen. But, in another way, we have death placed before us new again. It's different. It's not the same kind of death, but it is a death all the same. We are called on repeatedly to suffer as Christ suffers, to do so patiently, filled with faith, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, we are told to take up daily our cross, that some of us might need to face an even greater temporary death because the world hates our alliance with Christ. And that disciple is the question that is put before you today. Are you willing to do that? And don't think that you can rely on grand gestures. Jesus learns obedience through what he suffered. You will never lay down your life in one grand act if you are not willing to lay down your life in a million small ones. Take up your cross daily. You will never die before God the Father, no. But each day you must die to yourself, and perhaps some in here might have to die before the sight of the world. One of my favorite hymns, written some time ago, it's an old hymn, called Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken, gets directly to this point. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good for me. Friend, it doesn't matter what comes down. If you have Christ, you belong to him. Everything is yours. Give up your life to live with him. Perhaps, as we will in just a minute, we would put it a different way. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. 
thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Friend, as we sing these words, let us do so knowing precisely what they mean. We have bonded our lives to Christ. They belong to him. Let us always live like that is true. Let's pray. Father, may you be our all. May our lives be lived for your glory. May we not shrink back from trials and difficulties, any of the struggles that you have placed before us. Let us walk through those valleys with full assurance of your pleasure and love, knowing that even in death we live. Let Jesus be near to us today. Fill us to the brim with your spirit and give us hearts that long to love Jesus above everything else. We pray this in his name, for his glory, and even for our good. Amen.